Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. If you have your Bibles. <clears throat> Most of you um, have a fairly accurate picture of who I am. And uh, my name is Hunter, if I, if, if I do not know you. And <clears throat> it, it's weird um, being a leader in some capacity because you really don't know how transparent you're supposed to be sometimes. And so I, I may be on the... Um, I hope I'm not falling on one extreme this morning, but I want to be honest with you, church. Um, I was uh, I was I was in some pretty dark despair this week, and I uh, I felt so bad for a lot of you that were in our fellowship on Wednesday because I feel like I just kind of <laughs> came as a dark cloud in the room and maybe brought down the mood. Um, Really thankful to Brother James and, and Kaylin. Um, just having a time to just pray with them was, was rich. And uh, I thank you for the way you show grace and you guys love me. Um, God is good. God is so good. And, and hopefully as I share that, if the Lord gives you something today which I trust he will by his spirit, you better know that it's from the Lord <laughs> and not from this vessel. We're going to continue through Romans, but um, I'd like to uh, bring up a couple passages before we get in there that the Lord has used in my life this week. Psalm 40 is one of those that um, it may, be, may be becoming one of my favorite psalms. Um, and the beginning, just the beginning says, uh, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry for help, and he lifted me up out of the mire, and he set my feet on a rock. And whatever kind of waiting I had this week wasn't necessarily patient or, uh, you know, godly like maybe David was, but, but I was waiting all the same, and I cried that out to the Lord. And, um, and he did lift me, church. He lifted me out of the mire. He lifted me out of my despair. And despair is not something that you fall into. It is something you choose. You choose to despair. And to choose to despair is sin. It is sin. And so <laughs> I'm confessing that I sinned this week. And I need his mercy. And I'm thankful that I, I still get to bring the word to you today. And I'm thankful that the Lord gave me something to write and to preach to you today from Romans. And then the second verse I want to share is Ephesians 3.19. And this, I think, is what God used to kind of bring me out of the mire. Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and this verse finds itself in the middle of a sentence, and so it, it comes in on an and. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled 
to all the fullness of God. Do you see this? Do you see that what leads you to being filled with all the fullness of God is knowing the love of Jesus? Do you see that, church? Do you see the richness in that? That when you know the love of Christ, that's what leads us to be filled with all the fullness of God. That was just such an encouragement to me this week as I was meditating in Ephesians for a little bit and reading through that. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Man, may we know his love today. Uh, Jeremy, Red, and I are starting um, just to consistently meet together to, uh, to, to fellowship and to, and to pray on Sunday mornings. Um, we did a lot more fellowshipping than praying this morning, but it was, it was good. And I, I, I told him, I was like, man, I am shocked. I am shocked at how quickly I forget the love of God. Even this morning. Um, it, it just, it leaves my mind. And the flesh has all these walls, all these buts to the love of God. All these objections to the love of God. And because it's, it's, it's a mystery. How could you love me so much? And it's, it's really available? Like I'm really okay in your love, Lord? I'm really safe? Really? Yes. How great is the love of God. How good is our God. I confess it. I proclaim it. I declare it to you today. He is good. He is good. And his faithful love endures forever. Romans. Is your mind sober this morning? Are you ready to pay attention? I hope so. I hope so. I was so excited. I told Jeremy, because I think initially the plan was I would preach last week and Jeremy would take the rest of chapter four. And I was so excited. I was like, Jeremy, actually, I really want to preach the whole chapter. And he was like, go for it, man. And then this week, I'm studying and I am just hitting walls. And I am just like, Lord, I don't even know if I understand this. And so with the understanding he's given me, I'm going to declare the word to you today. But I am really going to ask that you would lean in and you would focus and you would zero in um, on the content today. So where are we in Romans, church? We're in Romans 4, and in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has shown us from the Old Testament that all are guilty before God. Those with the law, being the Jewish nation, and those without the law, the Gentile world, which would be most of us in here. None are righteous before a righteous, good, and holy God. In verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul then broke through the bleak picture of our hopelessness with the glorious truth that we can be saved, justified, made righteous. How? By faith in Jesus. That is how we are made righteous. And the only way you know God is with righteousness, and the only way you get righteousness is by believing in Jesus. 
Now in chapter 4, as we learned last week, Paul is showing us from the Old Testament again that righteousness by faith was the way all along. That was the way to be saved from the beginning. It, it hasn't necessarily changed. It's been the same, starting with even Abraham as far back, the, the beginning of the Jewish nation. We are going to continue working through this idea today. How does righteousness by faith work? That is, how are we made righteous by faith? This is righteousness, righteous by faith, part two. So in verse 21 of chapter 3 and the rest of chapter 3, we saw, okay, we're saved by faith. And now Paul uses basically all of chapter 4 to explain to us, here's how that works. How can someone be righteous by faith? And is that biblical or is this a new idea of Paul? And he's convincing us, no, not at all. This is, this is the way God set it up. And next week, Lord willing, we will jump into chapter 5 and begin to explore the results, the glorious results that the gospel produces. And that, that is going to be so, so good. All right, Romans 4. As, our as it has become our tradition to read the whole chapter, I'd like to do that. We get the whole context. We get to see it all together at once. We get to catch up on last week and see everything we're talking about today in one kind of uh, reading. Are you with me in Romans 4? Man, have your Bible open. Romans 4. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. If that's the case, in what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Circumcision being the sign of God's covenant. That was the sign that you were in the covenant of God, that you were part of God's nation, part of God's people. It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. So before Abraham obeyed God and received that covenant, he was credited righteousness. Not afterwards, beforehand. In verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while still uncircumcised. I'm kind of adding words in here for emphasis. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised. They haven't done the physical act of being, you know, displaying part, they're, they're part of the covenant. So that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, that is the Jewish nation, who kept the law and was under the old covenant. 
who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. For the promise, and this is where we're going to pick it up today, for the promise to Abraham and to his descendants, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, they inherit this promise. Faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants. Now this is going to be a fun part when we get to this right here. This dash. Notice this dash, okay? He's going to stop and he's going to give us a description of descendants. To guarantee it to all the descendants, dash, not only to the one who is of the law, being the Jew, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Dash. So go back to descendants. We're picking that back up now. To guarantee it to all the descendants in the presence of the, of the God in whom Abraham believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope. We're going to talk about that. So that, he may, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, this phrase, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Father, we just thank you. We just give thanks. Because Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We thank you. We praise you. We bless your holy name. You are worthy of it all. Lord, receive our worship. Lord, make our hearts pure. Lord, give us a brokenness today. A poorness of spirit. May we see God. May we behold this gospel. May we behold your grace. Lord, give us understanding. Quicken our minds. Enlighten this people. Feed your sheep today, Lord. Father, for some reason you've appointed me to give this word today, so please, Spirit, fill me, use me for the good of your people, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Verse 13. So this isn't in my notes, but he's talking about Abraham here, so we have to, we have to back up 
and remember who Abraham is. And, and for those of you who maybe aren't, aren't familiar, Abraham is one of the most important characters in the Bible. He was the one God called um, of all the people living in that day, thousands and thousands of years before Jesus came. And he said, Abraham, I want you to leave your home and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you a blessing to the world. And the problem was Abraham and his wife, Sarah, didn't have any kids. Can, how do you become a great nation if you don't have kids? It doesn't happen, right? So we have a problem here. But Abraham obeys God, and he, and he, and he follows him. And, and God continues to make promises throughout Abraham's life. And one of those consistent ones is that he's going to have a son. And... Um, and, and we're going to, and, and so as we're reading through this and, and talking about this, his son Isaac is the promised son that God eventually gives them. And so I just want you to have these things in reference as we're talking through this so that you're not, you don't get lost when we're talking about Abraham and Abraham's son and Sarah and all this stuff. Um, okay, verse 13. Are you there? Verse 13? Okay. Talk to me today. That's how I know you're alive. For the promise, singular, to Abraham or to his descendants. Now we've already learned that Abraham's descendants are those who believe, who, who are righteous by faith. Not just his physical seed, the nation of Israel, but those of the nation of Israel who believe and those who are not of the nation of Israel who believe. Those, are, those make up Abraham's true descendants. So the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, which his descendants are us. Those of us who believe in Jesus, we're descendants of Abraham spiritually you must understand that you must get that the promise that he would inherit the world was not through the law but through the righteousness that comes by faith our first verse today gives us a summary of our study last week the promise made to abraham isaac and jacob is not going to be fulfilled by the law that is by them or their descendants keeping god's law the immediate context here is, is circumcision that's what we've just come off talking, that, that obedient step that you take to make yourself part of the covenant, in a sense. The promise will not be received because dudes get circumcised. The promise God made to Abraham and his descendants will come through faith. That is, those who believe God as Abraham did, they will inherit the promise. The promise is fulfilled through faith, and specifically now with the context of all scripture, faith in Jesus Christ. We are not talking about one, some general faith, but faith with a specific object. And that object of our faith is Jesus. Talk to me, yes. But Paul says something very interesting here. Very interesting. He refers to the promise in the singular rather than promises God made. And the promise he specifies is that Abraham would inherit the world. Some translations will say he is an heir of the world, meaning that's what he inherits. Now I'd like to finish chapter 4 today. If we are going to do that, I cannot speak on this in length. So in the message notes, which usually they're available, uh, if you just go on your phone, fresnochurch.info, fresnochurch.info, the sermon notes are right there. And literally you can read along with my transcript as I read. Um, and then I'll take a break and throw you off. Um, so I've included a link in there 
to John Piper's sermon on this passage. Um, I believe he has some powerful insights and, and would encourage you to either read or listen to that sermon. Um, John Piper goes into detail on what it means that Abraham would inherit the world much better than I'm going to do briefly here. And, and so I'd really encourage you either later today or sometime this week, follow that link and supplement this message with, with that. It's going to give you a more holistic picture of what we're talking about. I was tempted to take the time and dive into it because it's very important to understand. So, um, yes, I already said that. Uh, for the sake of our time today, I'll give a brief explanation so we can continue moving through the chapter. When Paul describes the promise made to Abraham being he would inherit the world. He sums up the multiple promises made to Abraham and to us. We are Abraham's spiritual descendants through faith in Jesus. And this promise Paul is talking about is our inheritance in Christ. When Paul says Abraham would inherit the world and his, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, which is us, that he and we would inherit the world, Paul's talking about our inheritance in Christ. We inherit the world with Abraham now in part, and we will inherit it fully because God has brought everything into subjection to Christ. When Jesus returns for us, church, Abraham's descendants, righteous through faith in Jesus, then the promise will be fully completed. Jesus is clear in John 8 and in Matthew 22 that Abraham was not defeated by death. This is very important. We don't think about it a lot. And neither will we be defeated by death. We think about that more. We are spiritually raised with Christ now, and we will be physically raised with Christ at his return. Notice what Jesus says in John 8 and Matthew 22. In John 8, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, I believe, and he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews are like, what are you talking about? You're, four, you're not even 40 years old. How can you say that? Abraham is dead. And in Matthew 22, Jesus is talking to the Sadducees who don't believe there's a resurrection. And he says, so, and he, he just absolutely, you know, owns them, you know, when they're trying to trap him in his words. And then he's like, as far as, you know, when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, have you not read God says, I am the God of Jacob, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. That's hope. That's hope because it means Abraham is dead but alive somehow, right? Just like believers who have, who have gone before us and who have died physically. They are alive in Christ. Jesus says to Lazarus, uh, to Mary and Martha, he who believes in me will never die. We're not defeated by death. And when Christ returns, those who are dead, and this is like so many different verses all together, what I'm saying here. Those who are dead will be physically raised to a new glorified body. And we will join them. So, in some sense, and let me catch up now because I probably got ahead of my reading here. We are, uh, yes, and we'll be physically raised with Christ at his return. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul tells us not to boast in human leaders or in men 
Because everything is ours. What does that mean? He says everything is yours. You know? He's like, you're arguing who you're going to follow. Me, Apollos, Cephas, you know, Peter. He's like, what are you talking about? Me, Apollos, Peter, the world, life, death, they all belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Um, we belong to Christ. We are, this is key, in Ephesians, and when you read the epistles, we are in Christ. Spiritually, in Christ. We don't exist outside of or apart from Christ. He is our life, and our life is hidden where? In Christ. In Christ. This, I mean, this is Ephesians 1 and 2. So yes, the promises to Abraham can be summed up in the promise that he and us will inherit the world in Jesus. Because Jesus gets it all, and we're in him. So we are now, we're now stewards of everything. It's ours, but not ours to own, necessarily. We steward it for the glory of God, correct? But when Jesus comes and completes everything as we long and pray for, then we, we will experience that promise in its fullness. Everything belongs to Jesus and we are in Jesus. Man, I'm sorry guys. I just, I should memorize this so I don't keep reading because I don't want to read. We will belong, oh, everything will belong. There, we, there it is. Yes, I was like missing it. Everything belongs to us now as stewards for the glory of God. But then when Jesus returns, we will be co-heirs with Christ. Which means whatever is Jesus' is ours because we're in him. We will inherit the world. Let that breathe hope into you for a minute. Sit in that for a second. Remember when Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth? It's the same idea. Our inheritance is Christ. And that is the glory, most glorious thing ever. But and it's, it's weird to say, you know what comes with Christ? As if we need something more than Christ. We don't. But the new earth, that's going to be perfectly renewed. We're going to inherit that with Christ. And so this is the promise to Abraham and us. We need to understand that. And the only way you get to receive that promise is by faith in Jesus. So this is what Paul's referring to. Now, Paul says that promise is not fulfilled by the law, but by us somehow keeping the law. The promise is fulfilled in Christ. We enter into that promise. We receive it like Abraham by faith in Jesus. Okay, now we're going to start moving quick, more quickly. That was verse 1, or verse 13, our first verse today. We're going to start moving quicker now. If those, verse 14, you with me? You with me, praise God. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified. Paul says, if we could receive this promise by the law... If we could receive righteousness by being circumcised, by keeping the law, hoping in our performance of the law, then the whole gospel falls apart. 
The whole gospel falls apart. What good is my faith in Jesus if I can obtain righteousness myself? In Galatians, Paul says that that means Christ died in vain. He says, if, if I can achieve righteousness by, by works, why in the world did Jesus die? Jesus didn't die to help us along. We were dead. Remember that? I just love how jumping back into Romans, Jeremy set us up with Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We needed new life, resurrection. If all we needed was a little push, Christ died in vain, Paul says. Christ died in vain. Verse 15, because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Get this. This is a reminder of the really bad news we've already heard. Chapters 1 through 3. We're hopeless apart from Christ. If keeping the law could save us, we don't need faith. You don't need faith. Just find out how to be religious enough. And you're good. The problem is, we've already established in chapters 1 through 3, none of us keep the law. That's... That's the, that's the struggle here. Without the law, it's not that we are somehow righteous and then the law comes and ruins that. Without the law, there is darkness and we cannot identify sin. Because there's no law telling us what's right and wrong. It doesn't mean we're righteous because there's no law declaring us righteous. Man, ah, oh, this is beautiful. We need the law to declare us righteous. Problem is, it doesn't. Because our works go against it. So when the law comes on the scene, it reveals our sin, our transgression, our guilt before a holy God. It reveals the pre-existing lawlessness hardwired into our heart. Without the law, we are not going to see that. But the law shows us, see, your heart is not predisposed to love and serve God. Man, I see that all the time in my flesh. It is predisposed to reject and rebel against God. But get this, this is how amazing the law is. Because the law, like David said, all of, basically all of Psalm 119, the longest like chapter in the Bible, is all about David just, just adoring God's law. He's just like, I love your law. It's, it's just the best thing ever. That's like all of Psalm 119. Why? Why would you say that, David? Because just like the law condemns you and makes you guilty before God, so the law declares you righteous in Christ. Because Jesus kept the law. You are made righteous. That's why Jesus can say, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to establish it. God gives us all these laws and then says, well, that didn't work. Let's just throw it all away and start again. No. God knew what he was doing. And so he says, let me, let me do this. Let me fulfill the law for you. Believe in me, and my righteousness is yours. And I'll take your lawless heart. 
I'll take your lawless deeds. I'll take your transgressions, your iniquity, your sin. I'll take it and I'll trade you. Now the law, the law declares you righteous. This is not some obscure righteousness that you have. You are righteous by faith in Jesus. His perfect works on your behalf. Paul Washer says, don't make any mistake. We are saved by works. Just not our own. The works of Christ. The works of Christ. Verse 16. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants. Oh, this is good. This is good. Blessed assurance. This is why we must receive righteousness and the promise of inheriting the world by faith, because it reveals God's grace. It shows how gracious he is, how kind he is, that it's only because of him. We saw in Ephesians 2 weeks, we saw this in Ephesians 2 weeks ago. God set this whole thing up to show us the riches of his grace in kindness to us. That's why God set this up, to show us his goodness and his kindness and his grace. And if it's by grace, then God can guarantee it. Don't you get that? If I, you know, if I had a kid and I said, tell you what, you know, do these chores, do that, and then we can go get ice cream later. Can I guarantee that we'll get ice cream later? I could probably guarantee we won't, right? Do you guys see this? You with me? But if I say, we're going to go get ice cream later. And that's it. I'm just going to do it. It's what I'm going to do. Because I'm gracious, right? Similarly, if God says, okay, you get the promise, you get righteousness, do A, B, and C. God can't guarantee that. Because no one was getting it. No one's getting righteousness. But if it's by grace, God can guarantee it because he says, I'm going to do it for you. You are going to receive my love. You are going to receive my kindness. You're going to receive my grace. It is something I have decided to do. Now, Paul is going to continue the thought in verse 17, but he stops to specify who the descendants are. Okay, Who are these descendants? Not only the one who is of the law but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. What I believe he means by the one who is of the law is the Jew. Simply, as simply put. The one who is circumcised, the one who keeps the law, who is under the covenant. So the Jew, the ethnic Jew, part of the nation, needs faith in Jesus just like everyone else. Just like all of us, both are dependent on God's grace. The Jew and the Gentile and the Jew who is of the law must believe as well. Abraham is the father of both groups. He is the father of us all. Now, we've already covered this. I, I, was, I was kind of impressed. Um, sometimes I get impressed by myself. Is that, is that messed up? Um, I... Um, I was struggling over verses 16 and 17 because it is a grammatical mess. 
And then we were reading through it, and I feel like I sufficiently explained it. So I was like, all right, great. Praise the Lord. I don't get a boast in that. That's the grace of the Lord. So amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's move on. Paul is now going to describe Abraham's faith. Last week we just saw Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. That's kind of all we got. But he's now going to give us a closer look at Abraham's believing. But first he reminds us who Abraham was believing. Look what he says. Abraham believed the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. This is our God. This is what he does. This is who he is. This is what Abraham believed, that God was able to call a child into existence that no physical means could produce. And we're going to see that. Abraham was like 100 years old. There's no one who's close to 100 that has a kid. Have you ever heard such an absurd thing happen? Abraham had to believe God. Like, the faith Abraham had, we, we, we start to understand it now when we realize the conditions of his faith. Like the context in which he believed God. He wasn't some young buck newly married with his wife. Yeah, we're going to have kids. No, the time had passed. It was over. They weren't going to have kids. It was established. And then God comes and says, I have a different plan. I have a different plan. Has God ever shown up in your life like that? I have a different plan. Abraham later expresses in the same God, faith in the same God, when he God commands him to sacrifice the child, Isaac. So we know, fast forward through the story, that it happens. Sarah actually conceives and gives birth to a son. And she's almost 100 at this time. She's like 90-something. Poor Isaac, man. (laughs) So God, after he gives them a child... God's like, this one, this, the promise is coming through this child. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill him. Here comes God with some whack plan again. What in the world? What in the world? This is one of the most, um, if Abraham shines, this is the moment where he shines. Because he doesn't have any reaction like that. He just believes he just believes and hebrews tells us that abraham believed if if it if it had to be that god would raise isaac from the dead why because he believed the promise he believed the promise this was the child he already found out it wasn't ishmael it wasn't the child him and sarah you know forced into existence God said, no, Ishmael's not going to receive the promise. He's the son of the flesh. He's the son that you created out of your own doing. 
out of your own thinking and reasoning. Isaac is the son of promise. He, through Isaac, I'm going to give you the promise. So what are Abraham's options? God's telling him to destroy the promise. Well, he believed in the God who calls to life what is dead and calls into existence what doesn't exist. This is Abraham's faith. Notice this, church. He believed, verse 18, hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. Hoping against hope means that you hope when there's no basis for hope. In this case, no physical basis was present that Abraham and Sarah should hope for a child. Just why would you do that? They had a different basis for their hope. That's why. The word of God had been spoken. God promised something. God promised something. That's all the basis you need to hope. That is the basis of our hope, church. Do you see things getting better around you? you see our world getting better? Do you? I don't. I'm about to lose my mind looking at the world around me. I rode my bike from G Street to our house and just went down to Visadero downtown and to the left and to the right. Just casualties of sin. Just hopelessness. People utterly defeated. And you, it's not like I have to like judge them and look into their heart it's obvious it's so sad and I'm just so broken the word of God has been spoken we will be saved we will inherit the world God is going to come make everything right that is our faith church our faith is in the word of God the promise that has been spoken, just like Abraham. Verse 19, and this is amazing when you consider the context of Abraham's life because this man failed so miserably. He was a coward. He didn't trust God with his own wife. They go down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land, so Abraham doesn't ask God. He just goes down to Egypt, and he's like, hey, Sarah, say you're my sister because if you know, they think you're my wife, they'll kill me so they can have you. And so, I'll just let him have you. Disturbing. Quite disturbing, Abraham. And what's more disturbing is that he does it twice. He does it with this dude named Abimelech. Where's Abraham's faith there? I don't see his faith there. I don't see his faith there. And I love it because, because this, this is God's perspective of Abraham. In that moment where Abraham had the choice, is he going to believe God or not? When, Abraham, when God, specifically in the moment when God is promising him this insane promise, Abraham has a choice. What does he do there? Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith. Notice that. Remember that. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead 
since he was about 100 years old, but all, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham didn't deny the reality of things. This is not blind faith. Abraham knows he considered the impossible nature of what God was promising. He didn't weaken in faith. He didn't let that take his faith, though. It almost seems like Peter walking on the water, looking at the waves, but without his faith weakening. Looking at the wind without his faith weakening. Something happened there. What happened? Because he's looking at the impossible. He's saying, I'm about 100 years old. Sarah's never had a kid. She's, she's right behind me in age. Sounds good. Let's do it, God. Makes sense to me. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Because, why? He was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Why was he fully convinced? Because the God who promised is the God who raises the dead and calls into existence what doesn't exist. So it makes a lot of sense. Naturally, in the flesh, it makes no sense. Spiritually, it makes the most sense. Do you see this? Are you with me? Why does it make the most sense? Because God's able to do it. And God's able to do things that defy our small little perspectives and our reality. God is above it all. And so God doing the impossible magnifies and glorifies and show us, shows us who he is. Reveals who he is. So it makes the most sense that God would do it this way. Abraham made a choice. That choice was faith. That choice was believing God and he was strengthened in it and gave glory to God. In my life, there have been so many times when I am just lost in unbelief and confusion. I do not know what to do, but then God will come and he will reveal the path of life, as Psalm 16 puts it. Or, as Psalm 23 puts it, he'll reveal a path of righteousness for his namesake. The way out of confusion and lostness and unbelief. And for some reason in that moment, there's a clear choice to be made. Sometimes it seems so obvious, because it's been there all along, but for some reason I couldn't see it. But when, this is so key, by the grace of God. Where did Abraham get his faith? Because if Abraham's faith was dependent on Abraham, he has something to boast about. His faith now becomes a work of some kind. Abraham got his faith from the grace of God. It is the grace of God that gave Abraham the ability to see God can do this. Oh, church, don't miss that. Don't miss that. It's God who gives us the ability to see. It's God who gives us the ability to believe. We don't drum up enough faith somehow. Because then, then we got, a, we got a, a scoreboard in here. Who's got the most faith? What a way to miss it all. Let's make faith into a law. You must have 10 points in faith. You know, for this or that. No, 
It is the grace of God. The promise is by grace. We just receive it by faith. And for people like me who, you know, mental health and overthinking and stuff that can kind of drive you insane, the first step of faith is believing that God gives me faith. The first thing I believe is that God has given me the ability to believe. And then with the ability that God's given me, I choose. I make a choice. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to believe God. Oh, it is by the grace of God that Abraham was fully convinced. Sometimes I'm believing, but I ain't fully convinced. I'm like, I'm reaching with my faith, not resting in it. A lot of times, right? But it is the grace of God that will convince your heart. And it is the grace of God that convinced Abraham's heart. Now, he is the strengthening God. God strengthened Abraham to believe. It says he was strengthened. He exercised, or other translations will say he grew in faith. He exercised faith and his faith muscle grew. He made a choice. And in those times where I am just lost, like I remember my, my 2014 was a really hard year. And I was despondent for a lot of it. And my mom was such a blessing. And she just kind of was sitting with me in my room as I was just in the dregs of everything. And, and she said something that was so simple and obvious and basic. But what happened was I was strengthened in faith in that moment. When she said this thing that maybe I knew all along, but for some reason I just, I couldn't grab onto it. It was just something really simple. And I don't even necessarily remember it now. I, I think it was just, Hunter, you can choose. I think that's all she said is, you can choose. You can choose discouragement or you can choose joy. You can choose to be okay. And it was frustrating because I felt so humiliated. I was like, all of a sudden, I, I can. <laughs> all of a sudden, I can. But when I'm crying my eyes out on the way home from, you know, whatever, and just, just going, to, I, I can't. I'm lost. Waiting on the Lord and, and just, he'll, he'll bring the moment. He will give you the faith you need. And when God gives you faith, you know what you do with it? You believe. You walk in it. You humble yourself, and you say, you're right again, Mom. So I'm going to choose, because I believe that I can, because God has given that, me that ability. I exercise the faith God gives me. Let's wrap this up, okay? Verse 22. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, oh, verse 23 and 24. Now, this phrase, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone. I don't know why he says alone. I mean, this was written after Abraham's time, probably. Probably wasn't written for Abraham. Who's this written for? It was written for us. Verse 24. 
It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here we come to the end of the chapter and what a glorious realization we find. I feel like verses 23 and 24 is the conclusion statement of the whole chapter has been leading us to. Is this right here. We are not just reading about Abraham's life. God used Abraham to show us all something. He is the example Paul is putting before us. This faith is not just for Abraham, but it is the way all of us are saved, and it is the only way. Just as Abraham believed in the God who calls the dead to life and calls into existence what does not exist, so we too believe in the God who raised Jesus, his own son from the dead, and raises us from spiritual death. And verse 25 leads us into chapter 5. As we now explore the amazing reality of, okay, we understand, hopefully, how this work, this righteousness by faith works. In, verse, in chapter 5, we are going to begin to explore the new life that we live in by faith. What it means that we have righteousness by faith. And the news only gets better. It's going to make up for chapters 1 through 3. It's going to make up. Because uh, that's, that's how God is. Life is hard, but God is so much better. He is far more good than this life is hard. He is far gooder than the news is bad. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but it didn't end in death. He was raised to complete the work of our justification. Paul tells us in Ephesians and Colossians that we have been raised with him through faith. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. May our faith be in Jesus alone. Father, thank you for your mercy. Please use your word. May it not return to you void. May it Produce fruit in those who have heard. Even now, give us ears to hear in your mercy, Lord. Those who are lost right now, help them wait. Help them seek you. Tend the soil of our hearts in here today, Lord. Where there is hardness and the seed of the word has been preached and Maybe those who are, the soil of their heart is hard. The enemy is just going to steal away whatever you gave them today. Those who have rocks in their life, they're going to they're gonna be excited and um, they're going to rejoice. But then, then it, it, because it doesn't go deep, because there's all these rocks in the way, it's, gonna, it's not going to produce any fruit in their life. And those who have thorns, Lord, they got a bunch of weeds in their heart. This word is going to be choked out eventually. It's going to be forgotten. It's not going to bear the fruit of faith in their life, Lord. Because they'll stop believing because they're more convinced by the reality around them. They're more convinced by, like me, <laughs> you know, the discouragements of life and suffering and things like that. So please, Lord, get out the weeds this morning. Get out the rocks. Break up the hard ground. Have mercy on us, God. May the word bear fruit in our lives. 
If you need to be saved today, if you need to put your faith in Jesus, if you have the clarity to know that's what you need to do, then do not delay. Do not delay. If God has given you faith, believe. Believe. Trust in Jesus to save you, to justify you, to make you righteous, and then walk in that faith. Walk in that faith. It is a one-time decision, but it's not. It's a one-time decision that you make, but it's a decision that you live in. We walk by faith. Receive Jesus. Receive him this morning. If you want to talk to me or someone else, I'll be in the back at the resource table. Would love to talk with you. Would love to pray. Pray for you. Pray with you. Let's turn our eyes to Jesus, church. If it would help you express your gratitude and heart to the Lord, feel free to come to the front and and kneel or just be here if you want to make a decision of faith. It's open. You're welcome. You're welcome. We're not in this to please man. We're not in this to please people. We just want Jesus here. I just want to want Jesus here. That's what we're going to sing. We're going to sing forever Jesus. Because it's all about him. He is forever the object of our faith, of our sight. He is the beauty we seek.